If you want to open your Bibles with me this morning, we're reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. Lord, we are thankful that we can open it freely this morning. And Lord, we're thankful that in your word contain the words of life. Uh, we are thankful that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that you hold all creation and that you have promised a new heaven and a new earth. Lord, we are thankful for the end of this book, and we're so excited that uh, you are coming back. Lord, we pray that as Paul um, dissects this passage of scripture, that you will speak through him and to our hearts. Lord, that we will be able to walk in your ways. Uh, we ask this this morning. Amen. What we think about the future and the horizons of our future dreams and hopes has an incredible influence on shaping our present. It changes through our life. Um, I've got a number of grandkids and uh, some of them around three, four years old now, four or five years old. And uh, for a couple of them, their horizon is kindergarten. And they just want to get to kindergarten. Like it's their dream. Their older brother is there or they're thinking about it, and that's where they want to get, kindergarten. And so they're learning their ABCs and their one, two, threes, so they're ready for kindergarten. You pass through kindergarten, and then maybe your new future horizon is high school, and maybe getting your driver's license. And so a lot of your thinking is shaped by preparing for high school, how you'll dress, what you'll wear, how you'll talk. Um, looking forward to getting your driver's license. Then you get through all of that, and you realize, well, there's got to be a better future than high school. And so you start thinking about what your career might be. And so you, uh, your future is then shaped by maybe choosing a career or choosing a, um, a, a school to go to. Uh, maybe it's shaped by the desire to get married. And so that becomes your focus. And, and then you get married and uh, you've got a career and your future horizons then begin to be your workplace and maybe retirement. And so for the next number of years, your goal is to retire with a certain amount of money in the bank, and that future is what has shaped your present reality. And then all of a sudden, you get to retirement, and you think, well, I need to have another future-shaping reality. And um, for many Christians, that future-shaping reality is heaven. Uh, 
And uh, so that then begins to uh, fill our thoughts and minds and impact our present. But I think there's a, a, a loss in the church. And I think our loss is that our future thinking does not extend past heaven. I think any future that even sees the churches back on earth is a backward thinking, future thinking. Because the book of Revelation, the last two chapters of Revelation drive us beyond even heaven to an eternity spent on a new heaven and a new earth. And these next two chapters of the Bible are a stunning portrayal of what awaits us at the end of this age when this world passes away and heaven and earth become united in one in this present world, except a new world. And so I think as Christians, we need to move beyond heaven, although heaven is a real place, and we need to set our sights beyond heaven to the new heaven and the new earth. Another thing about this book of Revelation as we come to this particular section of Scripture too, the book of Revelation, remember, is a revelation of Jesus Christ. We talk a lot about Jesus, what Jesus does for us. And it's very right and appropriate for us, even as we come to the, the, the Lord's table today, to think about the fact that Jesus died for me. And that in his dying for me, my sins can be forgiven and I can enter into a relationship with Jesus and not be afraid, not be guilty, not be filled with shame. But I think we need to understand that the death and the resurrection of Jesus and what he purchased in his blood far exceeds my life. In fact, it reaches into the very corners of our universe. Because through the death of Jesus Christ, through the blood of Jesus Christ, this whole world, cosmos, has been or will be redeemed. And so we need to broaden even our thinking about the application of the death of Jesus Christ um, for us. And then finally, before we actually look at these texts, uh, the text that's before us, We've been filling our minds a lot with God's way with the people of this world that reject him. And a lot of revelation has been about that with a lot of glimpses, though, into what's waiting for the people of God. As we came to the end of Revelation chapter 20, we um, understood what the eternal future is of the dragon or the devil. And we know his future is forever in the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night. We learned that that is also the eternal future of the beast and the false prophet. We also learned that that is the eternal future of all those who take the mark of the beast and reject Christ forever in the lake of fire. But we wonder, well, what is the future for the people of God? What is the future for the lamb followers? Well, that's what Revelation 21 and 22 is all about. It's about the future of the church. It's about the future of the new Israel. It's about the future of the 144,000 sealed ones and numbered ones. It's about the future of this great multitude that John could not number from every tribe, nation, and people. Our future as the people of God, the new Israel, is what is opened up for us in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And it is a grand future. As John begins to unpack this uh, next couple of chapters and help us understand what awaits us into eternity, he describes it in really three ways. He first of all tells us what he sees, then he tells us what he hears, and then he tells us some things that are said. And so I just want to simply go through that and sort of lay the foundation for us. And these first eight verses 
are, are going to be exploded in the next number of verses in the rest of this chapter in the next one and will open them up even further for us. So John begins very clearly by what he sees. And the first thing that he sees as we think about our future and the future of the church is he says there, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heavens and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The Bible is very clear that this world in which we live is going to be destroyed. It's in various places called passing away. In another place, it's called fleeing away. And in First Peter or Second Peter chapter three, we're told that the world in which we live will one day, just as it was destroyed by water, the whole earth was destroyed by water. This whole world will be burnt up. Peter tells us about that. He says there that that. Um, uh, the earth, the heavens and the earth will, or the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. And the elements will burn and be dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be disclosed. The heavens will be on fire and be dissolved. And the elements will melt with heat. In other words, this world will be destroyed. It will melt away. But in its place, John sees a new heaven and a new earth. The word new is a word which means a qualitatively new world. It is something like we can never even imagine in our wildest thinking. And part of the way that John will describe the new heavens and the new earth is the only way that we can understand it by telling us things that we now experience, which we will no longer experience in the new heaven and the new earth. We sometimes wonder, well, what will this new heaven and new earth be like? Is there anything that will be similar to this world in which we live, or will it be totally different? And I think we get some kind of idea or a hint about um, the, the differences when we think about what uh, the Bible tells us about our human bodies. Paul tells us in one place that these perishable bodies, like we will all die, these perishable bodies will be made imperishable. So there will be a change in our bodies that will make them forever bodies. He tells us that the mortality that we experience will be changed into immortality. So there will be a day when we will never, ever die again. But then he goes on and he describes it in seed form. And so he's trying to help us understand what the resurrection body will look like and feel like. And he uses in the example of seeds. So many of us have seen an acorn before. And if you had never seen a grand oak tree in your life and somebody gave you an acorn and said, okay... I want you to draw a picture for me of what this acorn is going to look like in 30 years. I don't think there's a person here who would be able to come up with anything that re closely resembles what that grand oak tree will be in 30 years. So there's continuity, but there's discontinuity. And I believe that's the same way that we are to think about this new heaven and new earth. There will be some things, and I have my own thinking of what those things will be. I think it's everything in this world that has not been touched by sin. Everything in this world that is from God will continue on into the new heaven and the new earth. But it will be something that is so much bigger, greater than our imaginations can ever even dream of that God will make for us when he makes the new heaven and the new earth. It will be a qualitatively new place. And this is how John begins to describe for us what our eternity will be like as the people of God. The big picture, we now live in a world, and it's a wonderful world, but there's a lot of hurt and harm in the world. 
That one's going away, and there's a whole new world. There's a song like that, isn't there? A whole new world. I don't know. Some of you kids probably know that better than I do. Um, But a whole new world that God is going to create for us. And in fact, some of the prophets, thousands of years ago, were given a glimpse of this new heaven and new earth. The prophet Isaiah, for instance, eight centuries before Christ, God spoke to him through him saying, For behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. In this new world that God will create, this new universe, we will forget this old universe. One of the things that he says right away is that there will no longer be any sea. When I read this, sometimes I'm initially distressed. I spent probably five hours out on the sea a couple days ago and just had an amazing day. There's nothing like the ocean on a calm day. And so we wonder, is this to be taken literally or is this to be taken figuratively? We've been talking about how the whole book of Revelation is full of symbols, symbolic language to try and describe for us things that are indescribable. And so one of the things, and it's, it's a primary thing, which is fascinating. Why does John say there'll be no more sea? The word for sea is used figuratively and literally in the book of Revelation. I lean towards a figurative understanding of the word sea. And I'll tell you why. In chapter 13 of Revelation, there is a beast. Where does the beast come up from? The sea. In Daniel chapter 7, we read of four kingdoms that come up out of the sea. Those are descriptions of the sea of humanity. Those are the descriptions of wickedness and evil. When you go to the Old Testament, you find reference after reference that, uh, the, the, to the sea, which is used to describe wickedness or human rebellion or the moral chaos that is in our world. The sea is a wild, untamed thing. There's nobody here that can contain the sea. And if you've ever been out on the sea when it's crazy nuts... It can be a scary place to be. And so it's the Bible's word for describing moral chaos and rebellion and filth, everything that is opposed to God. It's a symbol for chaos and evil. And so what John is saying, I believe, is that in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no chaos. There is no moral evil. There is no rebellion against God. There is no wickedness. There is no mud of life. As one person wrote, verse 1 is not talking of the hydrological details of resurrected existence. It's a symbolated description of the absolute, utter, complete abolition of chaos, evil, and mud in all its moral dimensions. This is what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. In other words, in the new creation, all evil, all corruption, all rebellion, all darkness, all unbelief will be gone. I can picture that, sort of. And then he says, not only did I see a new heavens and a new earth, but I saw a new Jerusalem. Fascinating, isn't it, that John doesn't see a garden. I think sometimes we've been um, conditioned to think, I think it's the Joni Mitchell Mitchell song, I I, want to get back to the garden, that what God is leading us to is a return to the Garden of Eden. I don't think that's the trajectory of Scripture. There will be Eden-like qualities to this new heaven and new earth, a river of life, a, a, a tree that's in the center of it. 
But the center of the new heaven and earth is the new Jerusalem, this city that comes out of heaven. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was referred to as the city of the great king. And there's a great deal, I think, when we think about cities, some of us here, there's a great deal that we don't like about cities. There's, there's all the concrete and pavement. There's all the noise. There's the traffic. There's the big buildings. There's, the, there's the, sort of the chaos of the cities. But there's a lot to like about cities. In fact, one of the things that, that Kath and I miss from um, the city when we live for years in Vancouver is the ability to, on any given night, say, let's go for Ethiopian food. Or let's go for Indian food. Or let's go for Chinese food. Or let's go for Vietnamese food. Or pick any, any ethnic food you can think of and you could find it in Vancouver. Uh, cities are melting pots. They're attracting beacons for people from every tribe, nation, tongue. They come to the cities. And so I think what John is wanting us to begin to understand is the social dimension of city life. There are people everywhere. Relationships of all kinds that can be formed in a city. And the reason I say that is because notice that he doesn't identify this new Jerusalem with material landmarks like, say, a Statue of Liberty or the Golden Gate Bridge or the First Narrows Bridge over in Vancouver. But he says, I saw the city coming down out of heaven from God prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. I mean, this city is human. And in fact, it's absolutely made clear in a couple verses later in verse 9 where the angel says to John, come. And I will show you the bride, the wife of the land. Who is the bride, the wife of the lamb? The church, you and I, the new Israel, the people of God. He says, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away and he showed me, what? The holy city, the new Jerusalem. And so how John pictures the people of God is as a city. The city is people, and, and the people are the city. It's this incredible movement from a garden to this city structure that will characterize the new heavens and the new earth. So as John gives us broad strokes to start of what our future is as the people of God, it's a future in a new heaven and a new earth. It's a future in a city-like reality of interrelations with one another and social interactions with one another. Heaven is a real place, loved ones. But heaven is not the end. Heaven will one day truly be a place on earth. And then what does John hear? At last we have heaven on earth. And I have been struck by this the more I have thought about it. What's the first thing that John hears as he begins to describe now the new heaven and the new earth? Look at verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! We've talked about this before. Behold, right? Behold is not a word that we use in our language. Behold means, look at that! Stop! Listen to this! Did you see that? Over Behold! Look at that thing! And so, this is a voice from heaven getting our attention. And what is it trying to get our focus on? The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is stunning language. 
This is saying now we are back into a world in which there is no sin, there is no separation. Remember that when the garden was first created, some of you know Genesis 1 and 2, that God uh, created this earth and he made a garden and he put the man and woman in the garden. And God came down and he walked with them and he he talked with them. He had a face-to-face interaction with them and a relationship with them. And then sin entered the world because the man and the woman disobeyed God. And there was this separation that took place now between earth and heaven, between God and man. And then ever since the garden, we have seen this general trajectory of God beginning to come back to earth and to presence himself with the people. And so the first place we see this is in the tabernacle. And God builds this, he gives Moses the instructions on a tabernacle, and it was a big tent that they carried around with them. And in the middle of the tent was a, a, a place called the Holy of Holies where God dwelt. They made an ark and it said, and that is where God met them. And then they moved to Jerusalem and they built a permanent temple there. And in that permanent temple, there was a Holy of Holies. And what happened in that Holy of Holies? God came and spoke to the people through the Holy of Holies. That was the representative place of where God's presence was. And then we move from that to who? Emmanuel. God with us. And so now God has gone from a tabernacle to a temple to the person of his son. And he dwells on this earth for 33 years in the person of his son with us. And then when Christ goes to heaven, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. And so what is the next logical progression of this? Not a new temple on earth, but God coming to earth and living with us. Never again to be separated from him. That's the amazing thing about this new heaven and this new earth. There will never any longer be any separation between us and God. The intimacy that's described here is extraordinary. Have you ever had times where you thought you can't talk to God? You don't feel him. You don't see him. You're going through stuff in your life and you're calling out to God and he doesn't answer you, he doesn't respond to you. It's not that he's not there, but there's just this distance. There's just this this lack of ability to connect. There's a loneliness that you feel even though you're a child of God. Well, this is describing a time when that will never, ever, ever happen again. You will be present with God and God will be present with you. He will dwell with us forever and ever and ever. It's a way of saying that all the barriers between us and God have been removed. It's an incredible way of John describing this new heaven and this new earth. So what does that look like then? What does it feel like to have God with us in this new heaven and this new earth? Well, the first thing he says, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. I'm not sure this means tears of joy because tears of joy are wonderful things. Some of you, most of us have experienced tears of joy. They're they're wonderful things. It's just happiness that comes out of our tear ducts. And it's, it's, it's it's a wonderful thing. I think what he's talking about here, though, are tears that are caused by the effects of sin. Tears of pain. Tears of hurt. Tears of anguish. Some of you have been crying those kind of tears this week. Some of you have probably come into this building today and it's all you can do to hold back your tears. 
because you've experienced so much pain and so much hurt this week. One of the ways John describes for us this new heaven and new earth is that there will be no more tears. God will wipe away tears from our eyes. That's, that's a way of saying that all the things that cause us to have tears will be non-existent in the new heaven and new earth. I think another way to understand this, and I don't know if this is biblical, this is how I'm thinking right now, that not only will God remove all the causes of our pain and hurt that bring tears, but I wonder if in part what this is also saying is that God will show us how those things which caused us pain were used by him for our good. For God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called by him and who love him. That's just speculation on my part, but I, it's like, isn't, isn't that what some of you want to know? God, why? Why did this happen in my life? Why did I suffer this? I think part of it may be that God will give us an explanation that we will understand, which will in part wipe away our tears. Amazing that Isaiah talked of this 2,800 years ago. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from our faces and reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Notice what he says next. Death will not exist. This world is characterized by death, isn't it? I don't think there's a person here that has not been touched by death. Maybe it's a husband or a wife. Maybe it's a child or a brother or a sister or a grandpa or a grandma. Maybe it's a friend or a teacher or a cousin or a neighbor. We're surrounded by a culture of death. Some of it we bring on ourselves through abortion and euthanasia. Some of it we are experienced though, through, through various ways in which we die, but we live in a culture of death. Can you imagine a world without death? That's what John describes the new heaven and the new earth like. Why? Because Jesus has conquered death. Why? Because death has been thrown into the lake of fire. Death no longer exists. And then he says, grief and crying and pain will no longer exist. So much of our world is summed up in those words, isn't it? No more physical pain. No more broken bones. No more headaches. No more tumors. No more disease. No more pain. No more relational pain. No more abuse. No more anger, no more divorce, no more breakups, no more family strife, no more, no more broken hearts, no more pain. No more mental or emotional pain, no more anxiety, no more depression, no more fear, no more paranoia, no more pain. Physical pain, emotional pain, marital pain, relational pain, the pain of a wayward child, the pain of disappointment and loss, every sort of pain, every cause of pain, gone. That's one way that we can think of the new heaven and the new earth, by what will not be there. Where do you hurt today? What's causing your pain? 
set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the new heaven and the new earth to the day when all our pain will be taken away. He says, because the former things have passed away. Church, are you getting, beginning to get a picture of what is in store for us? And why it is so helpful for us to set our sights beyond this world and even beyond heaven to the new heaven and the new earth of what God has in store for us as his people. And then finally, what is said? What is said from the throne? And now John hears God speak. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am also making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. All things new, that's qualitatively new. New in a way that we can't understand or comprehend. Write this down, for this is trustworthy and true. Have you ever had somebody come to you and say, Now let me be perfectly honest with you. And my response sometimes to them is, So were you not honest with me the other day then? And does that mean that sometimes you're not perfectly honest? Sometimes there's room for white lies or stuff? No, it's their way of trying to emphasize the fact that this is really, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. This is God's way, I think, of just saying what is true about God who cannot lie. Write this down, for this is trustworthy and true. What? All that I'm saying about the new heaven and earth, all that I'm saying about what will not be there, this is trustworthy and true. Write this down. You can stake your life on it. And then it is done. Every single promise that we have ever been given by God or Christ or anybody else in the Bible, every single promise finds its fulfillment in the new heaven and the new earth. And so just like Christ can say it was finished on the cross when he died for our sins, so God can say now in the new heaven and the earth, it is done. All of my promises have come true. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Um, we don't, that's the, he, that's the Greek um, alphabet. We might say if we were to translate this for um, uh, people in North America, I am the A and I am the Z or the Z. It's really God's way of saying I was before everything and I am after everything and I am in control of everything that is between the beginning and the end. It's fascinating to me that there's only twice in the Bible or in the, in the book of Revelation where God speaks. Here, at the end of Revelation, and at the beginning of Revelation, in Revelation 1.8. And you know what God says in Revelation 1.8? I am the Alpha and Omega. I think this is one way of demonstrating to us that the whole book of Revelation, everything that is contained in it, God is in control of. He is sovereign over. From the beginning of Revelation to the end of Revelation, it's God's world, it's God's stuff, he's in control. But it's also emphasizing that the whole of this universe... God was before it, God is outside of it, and God is after it. It is done. And then he says to the Lamb's followers, to you and I, I love this, to you who are thirsty, or for the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. I think we all get physically thirsty. And from time to time, we, you know, you've been running around a lot, or you're, it's a hot day out, and you want to drink, and you drink water, and you quench your thirst. What John is talking about here is a soul thirst. If you haven't yet realized it, you will realize one day that, that everything that you see around you will never make you completely happy. 
No matter what it is, you, you might say, well, if I can just get this new toy, it will make me happy. Or if I can just get this video game, it will make me happy. Or if I can just get my first phone, it will make me happy. Or if I can just get to grade eight, I will be happy. And we just have all these things that if I just get this, 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 and I'll be happy. I'll be satisfied. You know that won't happen because if you've experienced even a little bit of getting what you want, you know how quickly it doesn't satisfy you for very long. What this is saying is this is saying that our only satisfaction, the way that our longing in our heart for satisfaction in a relationship, the only way that can be met is in a relationship with God. And this is an incredible thirst. Some of you know what it is. It's not some wacky that we're all nuts and we're running around. And it just means that he's the focus of our thinking. He's, he's our desire of our heart. He's the most important thing that we want. Oh, I want more of you, God. I want to know you more, God. And we find that as we thirst after him, he begins to satisfy that thirst. And you know what's even cool? Is you don't have to pay a dime for it. It's amazing. It's one of the few things in life that is absolutely free to you. It comes to us at great cost on God's behalf. But for us, it's free. If you don't have that thirst this morning, and you say, what's that guy talking about? What does it mean to be thirsty after God? What I would just say to you is then, maybe go home today and simply say, honestly, God, I don't have that thirst for you. I, I don't even know what that thirst is, but will you make me thirsty for you? And God will do something extraordinary in your heart. And you'll begin to realize how everything that you thought would make you happy doesn't make you happy. But if you think about God and begin to serve God, that you'll feel right inside. There's a great guy who once said, our soul is restless until it finds its rest in God. The second thing that he says is, to the one who conquers, he will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is an extraordinary promise that God makes here, and I, I just, I, I, I want to just touch on the things. I am very close to being done. You, you kids are being amazing. I know your Sunday school teachers don't talk this long, and they give you candies. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> but notice that to him who conquers... This is taking everything that God has ever said to the seven churches. Remember in Revelation 2 and 3? And every one of them ended with, to him who conquers. All of the promises God made to the church are now met in a relationship with God in the new heaven and the new earth. But it also tells us something about how God sees us. This is not plural, and it shouldn't be translated here that God, how God sees men and women. It's appropriate in other places, but this is a specific reference to how God sees his son, he will see us. Isn't that extraordinary? When God looks at Jesus Christ, his beloved son, with all the love, with all the relationship, with, with all the care, with all the appreciation, with all the satisfaction, with all the joy that he looks at his son, he looks at you and I with we're not, second, we're not the second sibling. We're not the third sibling. We are the first sibling. It's extraordinary. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. And finally, I think it says, 
Something about the image of God in us is fully restored. That was what we were created to be, to perfectly reflect God in this new heaven and this new earth. We will be now perfect image bearers of our Father. That's the hope for the people of God. That's the future for the people of God. The future for those who don't know God and reject God is the lake of fire. Father, thank you for our time together in this particular passage of Scripture today. I thank you for the way it's beginning to open our horizons about the future that awaits us, after heaven even. What a grand future it is. And Father, as we do know that our future thinking does shape our present reality. So would you help us to begin to look farther down the road? Would you help us to begin to look at the new heavens and the new earth and all the things that will be a reality in our lives at that time? And allow those truths and those promises to shape the way that we live today and handle the things that we face today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is that Jesus died for me. And that when I put my trust in him, that my sins were washed away. That my fear of death was removed. That this heavy cloud of guilt and shame disappeared. I was a new person. I was free. I know that much. And so I thank you for this reminder this morning, what you have done for me. And we give thanks to you together. In Jesus' name, amen.